Valentine's Day. Um, Valentine's Day is all about romance, right? Um, where florists and jewelers and chocolatiers and restaurant owners, um, they will cash in this week and this weekend. Um, uh, after they persuaded you that, that the only way to appropriate, appropriately express love uh, for your spouse is going to be with flowers, it's going to be with candy, it's going to be with a card, right? It's going to be with diamonds or a fancy dinner. Sorry to let you down, Sarah. Um, no diamonds this year. Um, uh, and don't get me wrong. Uh, Sarah and I have always joked about this. We're just not, we're not huge Valentine's Day people. Uh, it's not that we hate Valentine's Day. I don't personally hate Valentine's Day. I, I love spending time with my wife, romantic dinners and those kind of things. Although our romantic dinners are, uh, you know, I think there was a joke that I saw on, 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 t uh, on Facebook that our dinners seem to always end up at Target. Like, I mean, our, our dates always seem to end up at some Target run. Right? We're just, you know, uh, you know that's the way our, our romantic dates go, right? Um, but, no, I love spending time with my wife, right? Um, and I would encourage you to set aside some time to intimately connect with your spouse, uh, it, you know, and so that's a big priority. So I want to get that out there, okay? Uh, that being said, I've counseled far too many marriages, far too many couples to know that, um, to know that, that Valentine's Day uh, can be in a discouraging event for some couples. Because in, in the social media world that we live in, right, because everybody posts their Valentine's Day gifts and their Valentine's evenings out. And then there's this comparison of, man, this guy is loving his wife or this, this wife is, she's really loving her husband. And then there's this comparison game. And, and, and we seem to, uh, you feel as if uh, your marriage is stuck or completely drained out of any romantic emotions. And perhaps um, you and your spouse will be able to enjoy the occasion of Valentine's Day. Maybe the love sparks will fly for the first time in a long while. But my guess is that it won't take long for a different kind of sparks to begin to fly. Um, the, my guess is that it won't take long uh, for the sparks of anger and Irritation, um, uh, this, how could, you, you know, you may be saying to yourself, how could someone just profess their love to me so romantically and then be so selfish the next day, right? Um, I, I know this to be true. Here's the, 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 the theological problem with Valentine's Day. A marriage unity and understanding and mutual love and respect will never, and listen to me, never be built on romance. Yes, uh, you know, sure, romance can be exciting and, and it can be intimate, uh, but it doesn't last long. 
You know, Valentine's Day will come and go, and then you'll be back to your mundane grind of life uh, all over again. And so if, if romantic holidays aren't the solution to our marriage struggles, if chocolates and fancy dinners and, um, and, 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 and wandering around the aisles at Target, if those won't be the things that, 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 that actually make your marriage thrive, then, then I think uh, I know the answer. And I'll tell you this, I'm borrowing heavily from uh, Paul Tripp and just his analogies here. Um, just the analogies that he uses to break down, because I thought they were just phenomenal. Um, uh, he points to the analogy of garden, a gardening, the analogy of gardening. Um, how many of you uh, have, I, I don't know, I, Van, I expect you to have a perfectly manicured yard. I, I don't know that I've ever seen your yard, but is it? Yeah. It is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know why. I'm sorry I totally soloed you out here, but I just kind of expected it. Because, listen, I, I, have, I have yard envy. Sarah can tell you. I have, I have yard envy. We, we walk around our neighborhood, and, I, and uh, Josh and Jenny Daly, they're, they're in our neighborhood. Y'all know, you know the yards. There's one particular yard on y'all's side that's like, my goodness. Now, this thing, you know, the sod is like that thick. The, you know, it's coming up over the edge. It's perfectly, like, cut down the... Down, down, perfectly edged and whatnot. Um, you know, a couple of years back, I, I got really, really excited about, um, you know, of course, 2013, we bought our first home. You know, so I was finally having to start caring for our, our, a yard. We we'd lived in apartments and townhomes, or we didn't have to do any of those things up until that time. And uh, we plant, you know, uh, there was some grass planted, but it was planted in January, um, and it just really struggled that first year, it just really struggled. And a man that was a member of the church that I was, that I was pastoring at, is, um, he owns a peach farm and, uh, and is a horticultural specialist for Auburn University. And, um, and so I had him come in, you know, we were taking soil samples, we were taking all sorts of things, you know, he was prescribing, this is what you need to do, this is what, you know, this is, you know, the exact, you know, uh, you know, fertilizers you need, you need this much lime, you need, you know, so I, I just got totally obsessed with it, um, and I must say that my yard still didn't get any better that year. I mean, even, even with all that professional advice, uh, all that, all that expert, like, advice that I got, uh, there was something that still, um, that, that, that my grass still lacked, and that was a very intentional owner. Um, and so I think about that, and I think about the analogy that Paul Tripp uses in, uh, in his book, um, What Did You Expect? And you know, he says, I don't know why we think the most comprehensive and long-term of all human relationships can stay alive and thrive without the same commitment we make to our lawn. Perhaps one of the fundamental sins that we all commit in our marriages is the sin of inattention. And, uh, you know, and so I ask, have you ever, have you ever walked through your neighborhood 
and compared your lawn with, with others. And, you know, I think, you know, this session that we're going to have here um, is a call to a gardening approach to your marriage or future marriages. Um, uh, you, you have to be committed to, as to, to, to stay with the analogy, pulling out the weeds and planting seeds, um, fertilizing, tilling the soil, right, cultivating the ground. You have to constantly be doing these things. If you don't, uh, you simply will not have the marriage that grace makes possible. And so um, I think about this in terms of just pastoral ministry. Um, one particular example, a former church I was at, there was a young couple um, that, one, the, 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 the husband came to me, he's a young guy, he's about my age, he came to me, a little bit, maybe a little bit older than me, I forget. He came to me and said, my, my marriage is in trouble, we need counseling. Uh, and then we followed up with him. Uh, I said, okay, let's pick out a time for us to meet, and, uh, and, and we'll put it on the books. Well, the day came around, and he sent me a message, said, hey, man, like, we're good, we're good, Everything, everything's fine, um, you know, we, we seem to have worked things out a little bit. Uh, well, five, six months goes down the road. He comes into my office and he says, we're filing for divorce. And as he sat across the, as he sat across from me and he began to explain, now, there, there was lots of things that, that, that led into this. There was pornography, but it, it didn't begin there. Uh, there was, um, you know, she was, uh, she ended up um, beginning to have a relationship with a person from her office. Um, but as he began to really tell me those things, um, I found that, that those weren't the root things that, that really drove them to that point. I mean, they began to really separate themselves. Um, you know, and, and, and I will tell you, this seems to be a reoccurring theme that, that, that I know as pastors, we, we perpetually see um, this constant inattention in our marriages, which leads to one thing, which leads to another thing, which leads to another thing, which ends in divorce. Um, and it may not always, you may not be in a place where you're saying you're throwing out the D word, right, in your fights, but, you know, it all begins, um, and with, like this particular couple was not, uh, at the beginning, did not have a disastrous marriage, but they had a very weedy one, again, to keep with the analogy. And the weeds began to choke out the life uh, choked the life out of the love they had for one another. Um, but I think about this, you know, don't be too hard on that couple. Because, again, and as we constantly want to be putting out, whether it's, a, whether it's a talk on marriage, or whether it's a talk on parenting, or whether it's a talk on financial stewardship, or whatever it may be, fill in the blank. We constantly want to be reminding you that, one, 
for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? We all bear the mark of sin. We all struggle with sin. And so with that being the case, we are all weedy people, in other words. We are all have these weeds in our life. Um, we all have the weeds of, of thought or decision or desire, uh, you know, whatever it may be. And, and, um, and we cannot be completely, we cannot completely avoid this side of heaven, um, uh, a perfect manicured lawn, so to speak, right? Um, so pulling the weeds, doing the work, is going to be necessary commitment to a good marriage. Turn, turn with me to, to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. And I will say, you know, this is not completely in context of what's happening in the book of Jeremiah. He has a unique calling and a unique purpose, but, but there are some principles um, that I think we can take out of this, this, you know, keeping with this idea that there are weeds in all of our marriages, there are weeds in all of our life that we need to be pulling, and we can take some general principles from uh, this verse here. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10 says, See, I have set you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck out and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. You know, right now, um, Capshaw Commons, which is a building right over here, if you're guests, it's right behind us. Uh, it was formerly the, the old fellowship hall of the church. Um, and it's been many things. You could talk to uh, Barb Porter. She could probably give you a rundown of all the things that's been through the years and all the different ways we've used it. Well, right now, it's in the is currently under the process of being renovated. It's going to be really nice, you know, new sheetrock, new floors. Um, it's, it's going to be really, really nice. But all construction projects, all renovation projects for that matter, all begin one way. And how is that? Demo. Sledgehammers, right? The, fun, the real fun work in construction, Right? Uh, where you tear things down for the purpose of building things back up. Um, and as you can tell, too, and it's just another example of this would be, I mean, look at my incredible physique, right? Don't I look like a bodybuilder, right? Uh, this, this analogy is true, right? To build muscle, what does it require? I mean, from a physiological standpoint, what happens to build muscle? you gotta, you got to tear it down, right? You tear it down. And then proteins and amino acids and all these things begin to work and they, and they build, they, they grow. And so you think about Jeremiah. If change was to take place in Israel and it was desperately needed at the time, God is saying that this is how it will happen. To, to pluck up and to, to break down to, to plant and, and build. God is saying that change always has two sides of it. Two sides. Deconstruction and construction. Okay? Deconstruction and, and construction. And so our, our talk tonight really is going to center around commitment number two, which is, do you have 
the, the, do you have that slide? I'm not sure if I gave it. Yeah, that God will make growth and change our daily agenda. That God is going to make growth and change our daily agenda. And so um, with that, we'll continue to move on uh, in, in this. But, but in order for this to happen, we're going to stick with the analogy that Paul Tripp uses of pulling weeds and planting seeds. And, and there are all sorts of sins that we could list that I think are characterized in many marriages. And, and by the way, look, you know, I've been married for 10 years. I, I don't think I've had, I don't have this figured out. Uh, I'm still growing here. Sarah, can I get an amen? Um, I'm still growing, and I'm constantly having to work and refine things in my own life. Um, in our marriage, we're constantly having to, to sit down and analyze. Uh, but as I thought through some of these examples, man, I could just see, like, <laughs> the ways God has, has exposed things in me through the years um, that, you know, I even found in my time with this being really humbled uh, by his grace, uh, reminding, reminded of, of, of the different things that, that I, I think I struggle with and I think I brought into our marriage. One of which is selfishness. Uh, selfishness. And we'll, we'll, we'll harp on this one uh, uh, pretty much throughout the rest of our talk tonight. But um, it, it really is there in all of us. I mean... Are there any honest people in the room that would be willing to admit that? <laughs> that selfishness is something that, that, that every one of us struggles with. And it really is there in all of us. Selfishness, you know, and uh, Paul Tripp describes this as, as it, it is the DNA of sin. It is what really is rooted in you know, along with pride, obviously, but what, what's rooted in all of our sin is, is selfishness. It's wanting things when you want them, when you want them. And, you know, perhaps selfishness is the most destructive thing in your marriage. Uh, again, I can look back over the course of my 10 years of marriage, and I can all sorts of times when our arguments, our struggles were rooted in selfishness, um, wanting things when I wanted them, wishing, man, if you, uh, I need a spouse to be and to look exactly the way I want them, you know. And so there's this desire, I think, within us all. And um, the, the problem is all of this, is a horrible reversal of God's design. Um, and so selfishness will, will never work in strengthening your marriage. Um, you know, we're all constructed as, as social beings, made to live in one vertical communion with God, and the overflow of that is the horizontal communion that we have with one another. Um, and, uh, but I'll say this, and we'll talk more about selfishness as we move on. Uh, don't be discouraged or overwhelmed, um, 
the cross was specifically designed to free us from the slavery of ourselves. Grace is the means by which God frees us from our selfishness and constantly wanting to be about me, wanting what I want when I want it. And so, where are the weeds of selfishness in your marriage? How, how, are, you do, what, how are you doing uh, in, in finding those weeds to, to, to pluck them out, to pull them out? Another, uh, another thing that I see and uh, that, that Paul Tripp reminds us of is busyness. Um, I'll say this, uh, you know, Sarah and I, we joke about this a lot. Um, you know, with three boys under the age of seven, um, oftentimes, you know, we feel like it's just a rat race between work and, and balancing life and, you know, trying to meet commitments that we've made with people and, and whatnot between, you know, so between juggling life and work and, and all of these things. Um, I know this, a marriage that is going to grow, uh, change, and become increasingly healthy needs cultivation. And so, like a garden, again, uh, it does not do well when it's being neglected. So think about this. Are, are there things in your life that's, that, that are busy, that, that are just busying you to the point, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's work, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your kids' sports. Um, and then, along with those things, maybe it's materialism, that drives you to want to work. Maybe it's the next promotion uh, or, or glory in your job that, that desires for you to go to the next promotion and, and work more than you really should or, 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 um, um, or, or spend more time cultivating those things and then using those things as an excuse for not investing in your marriage. You know, I can think... Personally, um, that's a conversation Sarah and I have had to have uh, quite a bit. And I think most of my desire to be at every meeting or most of my desire to, to go to work is mostly self-pressure. Um, I, I have not had too many talks from employers or senior pastors or whatnot saying, Adam, I don't think you're, 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 you're not working enough. But usually what I found is mostly self-pressure. It's wanting a, either approval from people or, or, or what it may be. And so those are constant conversations I know that Sarah and I have had to have through the years of, you know, yeah, but I need to be at this meeting. Well, yeah, but I need you to really help me get these kids under control and in bed. And in the end, you know, uh, you know, I don't have to go home and sleep with Pastor John. You know, you know, I don't have I don't have to go home and share a bed or a room with him, right? And so, thank praise the Lord. Janine's saying, "Yeah, Amen." You know, but in the end, um, it's it's about priority, right? It's about what am I spending my time? What what keeps you too busy or too exhausted 
to address the real struggles of your marriage um, and to do the good things that make your marriage grow. Um, maybe it's in attention. You know, healthy people are healthy because they give their bodies attention, right? They pay attention to when they don't feel well or they pay attention when, when they don't, um, uh, you know, you know, they pay attention to the foods they eat when they don't feel well. And I think about, um, um, there's one particular um, reformer that actually journaled, not only did he spend much time in the Word, he used to journal extensively about the foods he ate and how he made it, how he made it, how, how it made him feel. Because he realized that, that the foods he was eating was affecting his ability to memorize scripture, to, to, to pray, it was, it, was, it was affecting all those things. And so, you know, the, the thing is true. Healthy people are healthy people because they pay attention to their bodies. And I would say this, that most marriages um, that struggle, they grow out of our inattention. And, and um, you know, Paul Tripp says in thinking about the attention we give in the early years of dating, you know, he says this, that, that here's how it tends to happen. Courtship is all about attention because you are trying to win the other person. You pay careful attention to his or her likes or dislikes. You quickly learn what responsibilities he carries and what his schedule is like or what her schedule is like. You listen for the tone of her voice and you examine the expression of her face you study how he responds to various situations. You pay attention to what tends to, to upset her or, or, what is, uh, or what has the power to bring her joy. You learn where he needs support and encouragement. You learn where she finds comfortable, where, what, what, what she finds comfortable and what she considers to be difficult. You become a student of her personalities, her tastes, politics theology, family, history, and dreams for the future. You do all this because you are committed to know her and to know her well. And you are committed to know her well because you want to win her. Now, isn't that true? But what happens when you put the ring on the finger? What's the typical response after you've won someone? Yeah, you, you may celebrate for a season, <laughs> for a season, there may be much celebration. But usually the desire to win that person, it fades, right? Because you've won them, right? You, you have them. Um, and I'll say this, remember, a healthy marriage is a healthy marriage by God's grace the people in that marriage, they never stop working on it, right? That they never stop working on it. They constantly are giving it attention. Um, another would be self-righteousness. Have you ever been in a fight and while the other person is telling you what you've done wrong or how you've sinned against them, you're thinking, you're activating your inner lawyer and you're crafting your defense. And you're thinking about, 
man, just wait till she stops talking here. I can't wait to unload on, on the way she's offended or sinned against me. Um, if you ask the average husband what's wrong with this marriage, he probably is not going to talk about himself. He's going to talk about his wife. And if you ask the average wife what's wrong with this marriage, she's, she's not going to talk about herself. She's going to talk about her husband. Because we've all bought into this, we've all bought into this lie that all of our struggles, all of our sin, all of our problem is outside of us and not inside of us. And so we have a self-inflated perspective of ourself where we think we have things figured out, but we really don't. And so has self-righteousness been the reason your marriage has struggled? Has there been complete willingness to look at yourself because you were able to look past the faults of the other. Another would be laziness. And ultimately, laziness is rooted in self-love. It's, um, it's the ability to, to take over, uh, to, 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 to take ourselves off the hook. The, the willingness to, to permit ourselves to to, to not do anything but expect the other person to, to be giving everything, right? And, you know, ultimately rooted in laziness is always self-focused, always self-excusing. Uh, laziness is undisciplined and unmotivated. Laziness permits us to be passive um, when decisive uh, and loving action is needed. And I could go on and on and on and on and talk about laziness. Um, but I want us to, to think for a minute from, um, from a perspective of the gospel and how the gospel impacts and works in these things. And if we're all honest with ourselves, we can see all of these characteristics in one form or another. We can see these things in our life, in our marriages. We can think back to the arguments that you had this past week or the week before, and you can think a lot of this is rooted in a lot of, you know, uh, selfishness or, or pride or, or whatever it may be. Um, and you don't have to be afraid to examine your marriage, no matter how weedy it may be. Uh, because God meets you in your difficulty with amazing, sustaining grace. Um, he blesses you with, with grace, with the grace of wisdom, patience, strength, and forgiveness. I think what it boils down to is it's okay to not be okay. Right? And it's okay to, to admit that and to accept that. But it's not okay to stay that way. And ultimately, if we're rooting ourselves in the gospel, rooting ourselves in what God has done for us, if you are God's children, it is never just you and your spouse. But there's a third person, and that's the Spirit of Christ who's raised Jesus from the dead, right? The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. 
If Christ is residing in, in your marriage, then there is a third person. And that person is not in odds with each other. So the spirit that's residing inside of you is not in odds with the spirit that's residing inside your spouse. And perhaps for far too long, you have let the weeds of sin choke the life out of your marriage. And so I, I say, how about standing up and beginning to pull those weeds? How about believing that as you do, uh, he will give you the grace needed at uh, just the right moment? Uh, for you. And so with that, I want us to think about planting seeds. So we talked about pulling weeds, examining the sins in our life. I want to talk about planting seeds at this time. And, and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. This will be a familiar passage to many of you. Uh, but Galatians 5, um, I think Oftentimes, you know, we look at it in terms of spiritual maturity for the individual. But as Paul Tripp shows us in his book, uh, and, and, um, what, what Did You Expect? He uses this passage to remind us that there are some truths in this passage that I think will be foundational to our marriage. Um, and so beginning in verse 13... Galatians 5, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Um, do you see principles of marriage coming out in this passage? Verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisive divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, but those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Um, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. As we talked about a minute ago, the root of sin is selfishness and pride. And sin makes us completely self-focused. It makes us all focused on uh, being driven by our wants, 
by our needs, by our feelings. And, and sin can so fill our eyes with our needs that we become functionally blind to the needs of others. We can be so focused on our interests that we have little interest uh, in the interest of others. And uh, now I think about this. If the root of uh, or, or the DNA of sin is selfishness, then sin at its fundamental form is anti-relational, right? It's anti-relational. The, the needs of the, indiv- uh, of, of the individual, the needs of the other person, uh, they'll always be at odds with one another. If selfishness is the root of our sin, my desires, my wants, my needs, my desires, again, they'll always be in opposition to the true needs of the other person. Um, so how many of us are willing to admit that we got angry last week? Uh, and think about when you got, thank you, Dusty, you got one honest person in this room. Yeah, think about when you were angry last week. And, and would it not be safe for us to conclude that little of your anger came from uh, a concern for the other person or concerns for your marriage, right? Most of the time you get angry, it's out of concern for yourself or your well-being. Um, most often we are angry because the other uh, got in the way of something we wanted. You know, you, you'll never understand the struggles of your marriage until you're willing to face the reality that something lives inside you that is fundamentally destructive to your marriage. And so there's a common thread in this. And and, and by the way, the Bible calls that thing living inside you sin. And there's a common thread that we see uh, Paul pointing us to in this list. So all the list of vices that 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 he listed out. Um, there in, in Galatians 5. Um, what is the single strand that holds all of these things together? I want to submit to you that it's selfishness. Selfishness is what, what drives all the other things that you see. It's wanting, wanting things now. I want it when I want it, and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get it. The one thing that lurks in every heart is the enemy of the unity, love, and understanding that we all say we want in our marriages. And that's self, that's selfishness. And so, you know, sure, you probably haven't married a perfect person. And you're not going to have perfect days. And, and, and in fact, your, your relationships are going to be complicated um, and there's going to be weaknesses and failures uh, in, in your marriage. Your husband or wife will, will have bad days. You will, you will make regrettable choices. She will not always be as lovable as, uh, as she was in, in courtship. It is true. Um, you, you just don't get to be married to perfection. Okay, so if I'm busting your bubble, I am, I'm sorry. You don't get to be married to perfection. But even with all of this being true, 
Your biggest problem is not the imperfection of your spouse. Notice this thing, again, that lurks in the deep crevices of our heart. Your biggest struggle is with the selfishness that tempts to uh, seduce all of us and is the weeds that, that grows in our marriages. And so if there's anything that this talk is a call to, it's a call to truly look at yourself, truly look within your own marriage and think about the ways that your selfishness, the ways that your sin have contributed to the hardships of your marriage. And when it comes down to it, planting seeds is really what Paul is calling us to do here. By calling us to live by the Spirit, we are to commit to intentionally planting the good seeds of a healthy relationship into the soil of our marriages. And this will take understanding, it will take commitment, it will take it will take discipline. It will take lots of perseverance. But I don't want to end this evening giving you a list of things that you feel like you need to do. I want us to focus in something in Galatians 5. So he's, he's calling us, right, to, to not live in the passions of the flesh, right? Not live and be characterized by the works of the flesh, but by what? But by the fruit of the Spirit. And it would be one thing for me to just sit here and say, yeah, you need to love more, you need to show more joy, you need to show more peace in your, in your, in your, in your marriage, you need to show more kindness, you need to show more goodness, you need to show more faithfulness, you need to show more gentleness, you need to show more self-control. It would be one thing for me to do that. But in the end, I'm, I'm not convinced that's really going to change your marriage. If it were that simple, right? If it were that simple, then I could look at every struggling marriage across the table and just say, just love your wife more. Right? What happens when we hear that? What's, I mean, what, what, what really happens if I were to look across the table and tell a struggling spouse, you know, you, should, you, you, need to, you just need to show more patience. Do people really have the power to do those things? Do people really have the power to show more love, more, more, more joy, more peace? What Paul is calling us to in this passage, I want to submit to you, is what it means to, to grow in the gospel. If we want to learn to forgive our spouse, we have to learn what it means to be forgiven by God. If we want to show more love to our spouse, it will grow from a heart that recognizes the deep, profound love that God has shown us in Christ. You know, think about it. 
what greater demonstration of love do we, do we see in the Scriptures than the God who, yet while we were rebels and sinners, that God demonstrated His ultimate love for us by sending His Son to die on a cross in our place. I mean, that cross is meant for us, right? The person that recognizes the profound love of God can then understand what that looks like to demonstrate that love to his spouse. Because if selfishness is the root of everything we've been talking about, the ultimate demonstration of selflessness, again, was the work that God did for us in Christ. So think about this, the joy. I could, I could look at a couple and say, you, you just need to show more joy. That would be one way to do it. I'm not convinced that would be the thing that would be most helpful for them. But I could talk to them about the ultimate joy that God has in them despite all their brokenness. Right? I could point them to chapters like, uh, like Romans chapter 8. You know, Paul is telling I'm, I'm wage, there's this war being waged. Where my, in my mind, I know it's true, but my hands, my members, they want to do other things. But in the end, Paul says in Romans 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ending with, there is no separation for those in Christ Jesus. And there's this father expression that's, that's spelled out in Romans chapter 8, where it's this picture of a, a father delighting in their adopted sons and daughters. So once enemies of God, now adopted sons and daughters, and the ultimate expression of joy that God has in his sons and daughters when, when we begin to recognize the great joy that God has in us, despite all of our issues, despite all of our sin, man, joy then can become something that, that flows out of that heart that understands that. Patience. I mean, I can get on the list, right? Think about the extreme patience that God has shown us in Christ. When we have sinned, what do we deserve? Separation? From God, I mean, it's common grace that we even wake up the next morning. It's common grace that the pagan that doesn't even believe in God wakes up the next morning. So think about the extreme patience that God has shown you. I mean, think about, I was talking about this past week in my sermon uh, of Peter. Think about the patience God shown, had shown Peter. Uh, and his sanctification process, which took every bit of like 50 years. You know, God gave him a new name and said, you know, you're going to be rock. And then he gives him this promise that he's going to be the chief cornerstone, that all the church, the church is going to be built on you, Peter. And then what do you see Peter do? Continually over and over and over and over again. He struggles. And God shows an immense amount of patience in his growth, in his sanctification. Kindness. 
know, we tell our sons all the time, be kind to one another. As God in Christ, what? Has been kind to you, has shown kindness to you through the gospel. Right? Goodness. All the provision and grace and mercy that he's shown you throughout your years and your marriage and your life. Faithfulness, the ultimate demonstration of faithfulness that even despite your continuing ongoing struggle of sin, your continuing ongoing struggle against, uh, against, against God's uh, word, your continuing disobedience, your continued disinterest, your continued laziness, your continued selfishness, 